When the consent of the governed becomes a joke, despots fill the political void. They give vent to popular anger and frustration while arming the state to do to the majority what it has long done to the minority. This tale is as old as civilization. It was played out in ancient Greece and Rome, the Soviet Union, fascist Germany, fascist Italy, and the former Yugoslavia. Once a tiny cabal seizes power, monarchist, communist, fascist, or corporate. It creates a mafia economy and a mafia state. The crisis we face is the result of a four-decade-long, slow-motion, corporate coup d'etat that has left corporations and the war machine omnipotent. The problem is the corporate state, and until we dismantle that, we are doomed. You're listening to episode 749 of Unwelcome Guests on the rise and fall of U.S. corporatocracy. I'm Robin Upton. And that was Chris Hedges, who's going to be speaking on the state of life in the U.S. in 2017. And we're going to hear mostly on the rise of corporatocracy, on how the deep state, the small cabal who took over control of the U.S. government, how they systematically dismantled bits of society that they didn't want, specifically democratic government and the family, a bit on the fall of the U.S. corporatocracy, it's still to happen slightly, so we're going to have a look at historical parallels about how the same pattern has been repeated throughout history. We're going to be looking at particularly the last 40 years, at the policies in U.S. society largely unremarked upon by the distraction that is corporate politics. Let's get a historical perspective. We're going to hear about the fascist coup in the early 1930s, which was foiled by the integrity of General Smedley Butler. This is called The Business Plot. Such as it exists on Wikipedia, you could find out a little bit about it. There's not much more, I'm afraid, on Wikispooks. It's worth looking at, and it references episode 229 of this show, which you could try if you wanted more details. Thanks to Tony Gosling for posting this MP3, which I found on Radio for All. And that was this year. I don't know where it's from, I'm afraid, and it does finish rather abruptly, but it is nevertheless a good introduction to one of the little forgotten corners of U.S. history, which you're not going to hear about in government schools. On the 21st of November 1934, the following rather chilling article appeared in the New York Times. It concerns the discovery of a planned coup that could have altered the course of American history. Yet today, hardly anyone knows anything about it. 
a plot of Wall Street interests to overthrow President Roosevelt and establish a fascist dictatorship backed by a private army of half a million ex-soldiers and others, appeared before the House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities, which began hearings on the charges. If these long-forgotten accounts can be relied on, I seem to be looking at an attempt to set up a fascist government in the land of the free. A coup that could have toppled one of America's most revered presidents, pave the way for a possible alliance with Italy and Germany, and thereby change the complexion of World War II. Fascism was seen as an example to be learned from because it seemed like a quick fix. All you needed to do was get people to shape up. You could have had a handful of the wealthiest people in the United States found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. But just what was this plot? Who were the Wall Street interests? Or was this nothing more than a moment of paranoia from a national media not renowned for its self-restraint? Well, the answers to some of these questions may have to wait until I can get my hands on the bulk of the evidence, documents detailing evidence heard behind closed doors by a congressional committee. But I already have the official statement released by that committee when it reported back to Congress. Its members clearly had no doubt that a fascist coup was in the offing. In the last few weeks of the committee's official life, it received evidence showing that certain persons had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in this country. There is no question that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. So such a plot, backed by powerful people, was waiting in the wings. That much is very clear. But how did it come to this? Well, it all happened during one of the bleakest moments in U.S. history. They used to tell me I was building a dream. The America of 1933 was in the teeth of the Great Depression, a time of extreme poverty, desperation, and the barren plains of the Grapes of Wrath. Brother, can you spare a dime? I see millions of families trying to live on income so meager that the pall of family disaster hangs over them day by day. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? The Great Depression is not called the Great Depression in this country by accident. Michael Kazin is professor of history at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. It was the deepest and the longest economic downturn in American history. As many as one-third of the labor force was unemployed in the early 1930s especially. The, really, the core of the industrial economy was all but shut down. Say, buddy, can you spare a dime? All of this added to a, a sense that American society was coming apart, not just the economy. People no longer had much faith in the authorities at any level, economic or political. Yet the image of those days we've been left with is not social unrest, fascism and treasonous plots, but one of dignified suffering and resilient faith in the American dream. No one illustrated that better than President Franklin D. Roosevelt, whose New Deal reforms promised jobs, pride and fresh hope to ordinary Americans. 
I, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. FDR's New Deal policies brought an increase in public work programmes, more help for the poor, and the removal of the dollar from the gold standard. Yet while history remembers FDR as a visionary saviour in America's hour of need, some at the time saw him in a very different light. There were major elements in the business community that uh, hated Roosevelt, and they hated Roosevelt out of all proportion to the scale of the measures that he had actually brought in. Professor Tony Badger is Master of Clare College, Cambridge, and author of several books on Roosevelt's New Deal. These were businessmen who essentially thought that Roosevelt was putting America on the wrong road in a big way in 1933, and that it was setting the federal government up as a sort of arbiter and enforcer and intervener in the American economy in a way that they were deeply afraid of. Such powerful enemies had been made within a hundred days of FDR taking office in 1933. The businessmen were also aware that out in the country there were demagogues who were making really popular, apparently radical-sounding appeals, and they were always worried that Roosevelt uh, was unleashing these forces, would encourage these, what they thought of as crackpots, to wreak havoc. The right wing in America wasn't going to sit back and let this happen. Although its members were a curious alliance of rich and poor, north and south, they were united by one central concern. America was changing in a way they didn't like. Professor Kazin. The idea that the government would create jobs, the idea that that these jobs would be given to uh, all religious groups and all racial groups was very threatening. And so a lot of people who didn't like what Roosevelt seemed to be doing with with the government didn't like it partly because the very people who were cheering Roosevelt were people who this still majority of white uh, Protestant Americans believed should not have any power at all in government should be subservient. American society was fracturing along racial lines as well as political ones and the right was sensing a new power. There were insurgencies we could call sort of proto-fascist groups called the Silver Legion, uh, the Silver Shirts, or the Black Legion. Uh, most of these groups were continuing some of the themes of the Ku Klux Klan and these groups often carried out uh, vigilante violence against Catholic workers, black workers in some of the factories in the north. Uh, these groups had great aspirations to become much larger than they were. Some of them had aspirations to imitate what had happened in Italy and, and was happening in Germany. It's into this world that the plot to overthrow FDR was born. But who was going to lead it, and how did they think they'd get away with it? I'm hoping the answers lie amongst the formerly secret papers of the Congressional Committee that investigated the planned coup. These, I'm told, are locked away in the National Archives of America, a few hundred yards from the White House in downtown Washington. Well, this seems to be it, the National Archives Research Centre. Fantastically grand building. Looks like there's strict security operation here. Airport scanner machine. Hello, I'm from the BBC. I've got an appointment with archivist Jessica Kratz. Okay. Hold on one sec, let me give her a call. Thank you very much. 
Jessica led me down increasingly claustrophobic corridors into the heart of the archive. Oh, this is a stack area. Um, legislative records, here, watch your head. The documents I'm after are from a committee known as the McCormack Dickstein Committee, after the two men who chaired it. And so here are the papers, the um, official committee papers. They're kind of organized by, you know, this file code here, um, HR 73A-F. And Special Committee on Un-American Activities on Nazi Propaganda. It was established to investigate the activities of fascist sympathizers in the U.S. in the early years of Roosevelt's presidency. It's a very small amount. Only, what, four boxes, four and a half boxes for what they did in executive session. So it doesn't look that much, and there's even less than it looks. For what the committee investigated and how much testimony they heard, yes, I mean, it's a very small amount. Despite the paucity of documents, there are some that catch my eye. It starts with some interesting disputes between... Uh, the general and the committee. The chairman, general, you are a retired commandant of the Marine Corps. The most important testimony in these records is from a senior commander of the U.S. Marines, Major General Smedley Butler. I was in the Marine Corps 33 years and four months on the active Major General Butler came before the committee of his own free will. He had, he said, been contacted by a well-connected New York City broker called Gerald Maguire. Maguire met Butler a number of times and slowly revealed his audacious plan. He and his financial backers wanted Butler, a highly decorated war hero, hugely respected by rank-and-file soldiers, to rouse an army of World War I veterans, many of whom were angry that a bonus they'd been promised had yet to be paid. The idea was that the general would use these men to help seize the White House, just like Hitler and Mussolini had used their private armies to bully their way into power. At the time, Butler, a staunch defender of democracy, went along with the plan, but he was secretly appalled. Inside the National Archives, I was joined by writer John Buchanan, who has made a study of right-wing America in the 1930s. These super-wealthy capitalists essentially wanted to pose such a threat to Roosevelt that he would basically step aside. If FDR would not cooperate and step aside, they would execute him, kill him. Smedley Butler's testimony shows the plot was at an advanced stage. McGuire said to me, I went abroad to study the part that the veterans play in the various setups of the governments that they have abroad, like France. And I found just exactly the organization we're going to have. It is an organization of 500,000 super soldiers here in America. Well, I said, I suppose you get these 500,000 men in America. What are you going to do with them? He said, did it ever occur to you that the president is overworked? We might have an assistant president. He went on to say that the position would be a secretary of general affairs, a sort of super secretary. He said, you know the American people will swallow that. We have got the newspapers. We will start a campaign that the president's health is failing. Everybody can tell that by looking at him, and the dumb American people will fall for it in a second. Now in his 90s, Jules Archer was a young man of 18 when General Smedley Butler gave his testimony. He remembers just how idolised the man still was by the tens of thousands of veterans who'd been under his command. He was a fantastic anti-war general. He was very popular with the uh, 
soldiers and sailors, he fought for them, and he fought for their rights. That was one of the reasons he was selected for the plot, because they knew he could raise a paramilitary army of veterans who would follow him because they, they believed in him. It was here at the Association of the Bar in central New York City, just a stone's throw from Wall Street, that the case against the plotters came to a head. The chief witness, Major General Smedley Butler, walked up these steps past the giant stone pillars that tower above me here and through the rather elegant doors. Even today, all the officers on either side of me, behind the large wooden doors, are packed with people who are, are going through today's important legal cases. But back on Tuesday, the 20th of November, 1934, this was perhaps the most serious case the country could possibly have faced. And the room where it all took place is up several flights of stairs in what's known as the supper room. One of the most important witnesses who came here was Paul Cumley French, a journalist Smedley Butler took into his confidence after the conspirators had tried to recruit him. French had also met chief plotter Gerald Maguire at his Wall Street offices, and he recounted their conversation to the committee. We need a fascist government in this country, he insisted, to save the nation from the communists who want to tear it down and wreck all that we have built in America. The only men who have the patriotism to do it are the soldiers, and Smedley Butler is the ideal leader. He could organize a million men overnight. During the course of the conversation, he continually discussed the need of a man on a white horse, as he called it, a dictator who would come galloping in on his white horse. He said that was the only way, to save the capitalistic system. But it was Smedley Butler, war hero and soldier's friend, who exposed the plot. He continued his meetings with Maguire until he gathered enough information on the plotters to bring the evidence before the McCormack Dixton Committee. But given that there were no recordings of these meetings or letters written by Maguire outlining his plans, how can we be sure that the general didn't exaggerate or even make up the whole story? Jules Archer, who went on to study the lives of Smedley Butler and Representative John McCormack, is convinced the plot was real. He remembers talking to McCormack about his time as chairman of the committee that investigated the case. McCormack was a veteran politician. He was an advisor to Roosevelt and other presidents. He had a heavy Irish accent. He told me... General Smedley Butler was one of the outstanding Americans in our history. I cannot emphasize too strongly the very important part he played in exposing the fascist plot in the early 1930s, backed by and planned by persons possessing tremendous wealth. There was no doubt about it that uh, McCormick was absolutely convinced that Butler was telling the truth. On the Nazi affairs of talks on the Nazi movement in the United States. In representative In this early radio archive, you can just make out the other co-chairman, Representative Samuel Dickstein, warning Americans to be aware of the threat from fascist forces from within. We have succeeded in unearthing evidence to define the Nazi government here as the most dangerous threat to our democracy that has ever existed. 
and the central character of the plot, the plain-speaking Major General Smedley Butler, was caught on early newsreel from the time, explaining his part in exposing the plot. I talked with an investigator for this committee. He told me they had unearthed evidence linking my name with several such veteran organizations. As it then seemed to me to be getting serious, I felt it was my duty to tell all I knew of such activities to this committee. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institution. So Smedley Butler remained adamant that he was the target of a fascist plot, and there was never any doubt either in the mind of committee chairman John McCormack that the forces of fascism were gathering to storm the White House. But who was going to fund the coup? Even with the backing of 500,000 veterans, a plot of this sort against the most powerful government on earth needs money as well as muscle, and an awful lot of it too. Well, according to Smedley Butler, this was where the big business moguls and Wall Street brokers behind the coup came in. They, he was told by Maguire, would soon step out of the shadows in the form of a newly created lobby group. Soon after he made this promise to Butler, the American Liberty League was born. John Buchanan. Maguire said, well, you're going to see in the next few weeks in the press this organization is going to be created that's going to front for the whole thing and we're going to stand up for the Constitution and we're going to stand up for our troops and so on. And lo and behold, about two weeks later, splashed all over the major newspapers of the time, especially in New York and Washington, the creation of the American Liberty League. To get a flavor of the ideology that motivated the Liberty League, here's one of their leading supporters, Demarest Lloyd, writing in his magazine, Affairs. Popular government is a perilous extravagance in time of emergency. The present situation is more destructive than war, and much more difficult for a popular government to handle. It is quite apparent that unless confusion is to become chaos, Congress, like a long line of unfit rulers in the past, should abdicate. It's a matter of record that the membership of the American Liberty League included some of the most famous names in business. Its benefactors read like a who's who of household products that are still familiar today. General Foods, the makers of Maxwell House Coffee, Birdseye and Colgate, Heinz Foods, U.S. Steel and car manufacturer General Motors were all supporters of the League. These are industrial, individual titans of industry and they talk to each other and they wound each other up into ever-increasing frenzy and denunciation of the men in the White House. They become quite a fevered, conspiracy-oriented group of individuals. They are the people who go on to form the American Liberty League. The treasurer of this organisation was the broker Grayson Murphy. A little research has revealed that he was none other than the boss of the man at the centre of the plot allegations, Gerald Maguire. Later in the McCormack-Dickstein report, a shipping company called Hamburg America Line was accused of providing free passage to Germany to American journalists willing to write favourable copy on Hitler's rise to power. The company is also alleged to have brought Nazi spies and pro-fascist sympathisers into America. John Buchanan has studied this later section of the report and has discovered that one of the company's managers came from a very famous family. The, the thing that surprised me most was to discover in the documents that this company, Hamburg America Lines, had in fact been managed on the U.S. side at the executive level by Prescott Bush, 
as part of a web of Nazi business interests that were all seized in late 1942 under the Trading with the Enemy Act by the U.S. Congress. And Prescott Bush is the grandfather of the sitting president of the United States. Of course, at the time, it was perfectly legal to have dealings with Hitler's Germany. Prescott Bush was not called to account for this until America entered the war. Neither was it a crime to be a member of a lobby group like the Liberty League, and I found no firm evidence that the Liberty League itself was behind a plot to overthrow their country's democratically elected president. But academics like Professor Tony Badger believes that it was, at the very least, a magnet for those with such intentions. It would always surprise me if they had been really there had been a lot of very fine-tuned planning. But the sense that forces that might be unleashed by the New Deal pose such a threat that desperate measures might be needed does ring true. But yet again, the evidence is hard to find. You'd have thought that if there was any linking leading American industrialists of the day to a plot against the president, I'd be able to find it at the National Archives in Washington. Yet when John Buchanan and I leafed through the rather thin files there, we found no direct reference to any of these people. Though I'm now starting to wonder whether any such evidence has been removed or deliberately withheld from the records in the first place. General Butler seemed to have harboured similar suspicions. After the investigating committee published its findings, he accused its members of deliberately editing out of his testimony the names of top business people who he had linked to the plot. On the 17th of February 1935, just after the committee had published its findings, he had this to say on Radio WCAU. Like most committees, it has slaughtered the little and allowed the big to escape. The big shots weren't even called to testify. They were all mentioned in the testimony. Why was all mention of these names suppressed from the testimony? The co-chairman, Samuel Dickstein, admits that the papers were censored, but insisted that this was for a very good reason. The testimony given by General Butler was kept confidential until such time as the names of the persons who were mentioned could be checked upon and verified. This accounts for the fact that when the results of the hearings were made public... References were omitted. That argument would have seemed fair enough if names had later been checked and verified. Yet most of the senior figures implicated in General Smedley Butler's evidence were never asked to appear before the committee to answer the questions raised. Even though, had the allegations against them been found to be true, people like Irene Dupont and banker J.P. Morgan could have faced the death sentence for treason. The investigations mysteriously turn to vapor when it comes time to call them to testify. FDR's main interest was getting the New Deal passed. And so he struck a deal in which it was agreed that the plotters would walk free if Wall Street would back off of their opposition to the New Deal and let FDR do what he wanted. John Buchanan. With their cover blown, it seems likely that the plotters and their wealthy backers had little option but to accept such a deal and return to the business they knew best, making money. But what chance would such a coup have had anyway? Even with millions of dollars and 500,000 veterans at their disposal, could the plotters ever have pulled it off against the armed forces of a great power like the US? Well, according to Professor Tony Badger, back then it might not have been quite as difficult as it now seems. 
The American army was anything but powerful in 1933. The peacetime army had been reduced to, what, 120, 130,000, scattered all over the United States. It was a depressing and soul-destroying business being an army officer in the United States in the 1920s and 1930s. So I think the sense that the American army as such was a powerful group that could have put down any trouble it has to be seen in that, in that context. Though Professor William Becker of George Washington University insists that defeating the Federal Army would only be the first of many big challenges still facing the coup leaders. I just remain extremely sceptical about this because the US government was, in fact, very, very decentralised. When one talks about you know, seizing power, I just think it would be extremely difficult given the decentralised nature of the government. There, there would have been enormous resistance to that. Professor William Becker. Perhaps the biggest remaining question is whether, had the coup gone ahead and been successful, the American people would ever have put up with a dictator in the White House. It seems unlikely. After all, this is a nation that describes itself as the land of the free, the home of democracy. But Professor Michael Kazin is not quite so dismissive. He believes that if we today are ready to accept the loss of some of our liberties in return for personal security, might Americans of the Great Depression have been just as ready to sacrifice some of their freedoms for food, jobs and financial security. People wanted security. I mean, the key word in the 30s, as now for that matter, was security. Uh, Social security, of course, uh, health security. And Americans, I think, in the 30s cared more about security than they did about democracy. And so if a group of uh, businessmen, uh, with the help of some people, former military people or current military people, could have fairly quickly brought the economy back, created the sense of security, then yes, it is possible that, that they would have gotten some popular support. America would have become a dictatorship. Democracy would be gone. America would have joined Hitler and Mussolini as a fascist triumphant. Now, we continue with unwelcome guests regular. This is Chris Hedges. I've posted a video of this presentation online at our webpage, unwelcomeguests.net slash 749. He's speaking in Portland in 2017 at the KBU Stop Fascism event. And I've trimmed a little bit of hesitation and audience applause to fit this within the required time frame. The decision by the deep state in ancient Rome, like the United States in 2017, dominated by a bloated military and corrupt oligarchy. To strangle the Emperor Commodus in his bath in the year 192 did not halt the growing chaos and precipitous decline of the Roman Empire. Commodus, like a number of other late Roman empires and like Donald Trump, was incompetent and consumed by his own vanity. He commissioned innumerable statues of himself as Hercules and had little interest in governance. He used his position as head of state to make himself the star of his own ongoing public show. 
He fought victoriously as a gladiator in the arena in fixed bouts. Power for Commodus, as it is for Trump, was primarily about catering to his bottomless narcissism, hedonism, and lust for wealth. He sold public offices so the ancient equivalents of Betsy DeVos and Steve Mnuchin could orchestrate a vast kleptocracy. Commodus was replaced by the reformer Pertinax, the Bernie Sanders of his day, who attempted to curb the unchecked power of the Praetorian Guards, the ancient version of the military-industrial complex. This effort saw the Praetorian Guards assassinate Pertinax after three months in office. The guards then auctioned off the office of emperor to the highest bidder. The next emperor, Didius Julianus, lasted 66 days. There would be five emperors in 193 AD, the year after the assassination of Commodus. Trump and our decaying empire have ominous historical precedents. If the deep state replaces Trump, whose ineptitude and imbecility are embarrassing to the empire, that action will not restore our democracy any more than replacing Commodus restored the Republic to Rome. The choice is between inept fascists like Trump and competent fascists like Pence. Our Republic is dead. The idiots seen in the decay the chance for personal advancement and profit take over in the final days of crumbling civilizations. Idiot generals wage endless unwinnable wars that bankrupt the nation. Idiot economists call for reducing taxes for the rich and cutting social service programs for the poor and project economic growth on the basis of myth. Idiot industrialists poison the water, the soil, and the air, slash jobs, and depress wages. Idiot bankers gamble on self-created financial bubbles and impose crippling debt peonage on the citizens. Idiot journalists and public intellectuals pretend despotism is democracy. Idiot intelligence operatives orchestrate the overthrowing of foreign governments to create lawless enclaves that give rise to enraged fanatics. And idiot professors, experts, and specialists busy themselves with unintelligible jargon and arcane theory that buttress the policies of the rulers. Idiot entertainers and producers create lurid spectacles of sex, gore, and fantasy. There is a familiar checklist for extinction. We are ticking off every item on it. The idiots know only one word, more. They are unencumbered by common sense. They hoard wealth and resources until workers cannot make a living and the infrastructure collapses. They live in privileged compounds where they eat chocolate cake and order missile strikes. They see the state as a projection of their own vanity. The Roman, Mayan, French, Habsburg, Ottoman, 
Romanov, Wilhelmine, Pahlavi, and Soviet dynasties crumbled because the whims and obsessions of ruling idiots were law. Trump is the face of our collective idiocy. He is what lies behind the mask of our professed civility and rationality, a sputtering, narcissistic, bloodthirsty megalomaniac. This face in the past was hidden, at least to most white Americans, but with the destruction of democratic institutions and the disempowerment of the citizen, the oligarchs and the kleptocrats have become brazen. They no longer need to pretend. They steal and lie openly. They wield armies and fleets against the wretched of the earth, blithely ignore the looming catastrophe caused by global warming and cannibalize the nation, while at night, like some monster from the Grand Guignol, the idiot-in-chief, overseeing our self-immolation, sits slack-jawed in front of a television set before opening his beautiful Twitter account. Forget the firing of James Comey, forget the paralysis in Congress, forget the inanity of a press that covers our descent into tyranny as if it were a sports contest between corporate Republicans and corporate Democrats or a reality show starring our maniacal president. Forget the noise. The crisis we face is not embodied in the public images of the politicians that run our dysfunctional government. The crisis we face is the result of a four-decade-long, slow-motion corporate coup d'etat that has left corporations and the war machine omnipotent, turned our electoral system into legalized bribery, and elevated public figures who master the arts of entertainment and artifice. Trump is the symptom. He is not the disease. Our descent into despotism began with the pardoning of Richard Nixon, all of whose impeachable crimes are now legal. And the extrajudicial assault, including targeted assassinations and imprisonment, carried out on dissidents and radicals, especially black radicals. This assault, done in the name of law and order, put the organs of internal security from the FBI to Homeland Security beyond the reach of the law. It began with the creation of corporate-funded foundations and organizations that took control of the press, the courts, the universities, scientific research, and the two major political parties. It began with empowering militarized police to kill unarmed citizens and the spread of a horrendous system of mass incarceration and the death penalty. It began with the stripping away of our most basic constitutional rights, privacy, due process, habeas corpus, fair elections, and dissent. It began when big money was employed by political operatives such as Roger Stone, a close advisor to Trump, who created negative political advertisements and spread malicious, malicious gossip and false narratives all eagerly amplified by a media devoted to profits and ratings rather than truth, to deceive the public 
until political debate became burlesque. The ruling elites, terrified by the mobilization of the left in the 1960s or by what the political scientist Samuel Huntington called America's excess of democracy, built counter-institutions to delegitimize and marginalize critics of corporate capitalism and imperialism. They bought the allegiances of the two main political parties. They imposed obedience to the neoliberal ideology within academia and the press. This campaign laid out by Lewis Powell in his 1971 memorandum titled Attack on American Free Enterprise System was the blueprint for the creeping coup d'etat that 45 years later is complete. Our failure to defend the rights of those who are demonized and persecuted leaves us all demonized and persecuted. Our failure to demand justice for everyone leaves us all without justice. Our failure to halt the crushing of popular movements that stand unequivocally with the oppressed leaves us all oppressed. Our failure to protect our democracy leaves us without a democracy. The persecution of the radicals of four decades ago is not ancient history. It is the genesis of the present. It spawned the corporate coup and the machinery of state terror. We will pay for our complacency. We are trapped like rats in a cage. A con artist may be turning the electric shocks on and off, but the problem is the corporate state. And until we dismantle that, we are doomed. Racist, violent, and despotic forces have always been part of the American landscape. They have often been tolerated and empowered by the state to persecute poor people of color and dissidents. These forces are denied absolute power as long as a majority of citizens have a say in their own governance. But once citizens are locked out of government and denied a voice, power shifts into the hands of the enemies of the open society. When democratic institutions cease to function, when the consent of the governed becomes a joke, despots fill the political void. They give vent to popular anger and frustration while arming the state to do to the majority what it has long done to the minority. This tale is as old as civilization. It was played out in ancient Greece and Rome, the Soviet Union, fascist Germany, fascist Italy, and the former Yugoslavia. Once a tiny cabal seizes power, monarchist, communist, fascist, or corporate. It creates a mafia economy and a mafia state. Trump and his coterie of billionaires, generals, half-wits, Christian fascists, criminals, racists, and deviants play the role of the Snopes clan in some of William Faulkner's novels. The Snopeses filled the power vacuum of the decayed South, and ruthlessly seized control from the degenerated former slaveholding aristocratic elites. Flem Snopes and his extended family, which includes a killer, a pedophile, a bigamist, an arsonist, 
a mentally disabled man who copulates with a cow and a relative who sells tickets to witness the bestiality are fictional representations of the moral rot unleashed by unfettered capitalism. The usual reference to amorality, while accurate, is not sufficiently distinctive and by itself does not allow us to place them as they should be placed in a historical moment, the critic Irving Howe wrote of the Snopeses. Perhaps the most important thing to be said is that they are what comes afterwards, the creatures that emerge from the devastation with the slime still upon their lips. Let a world collapse in the South or Russia, and there appear figures of coarse ambition driving their way up from beneath the social bottom, men to whom moral claims are not so much absurd as incomprehensible, sons of bushwhackers and musics drifting in from nowhere and taking over through the sheer outrageousness of their monolithic force. They become presidents of local banks and chairmen of party regional committees and later, a trifle slicked up, they muscle their way into Congress or the Politburo. Scavengers without inhibition. They need not believe in the crumbling official code of their society. They need only learn to mimic its sounds. Societies that had democratic traditions are easy prey for the enemies of democracy. Demagogues pay deference to the patriotic ideals, rituals, and practices and forms of the open society while they dismantle it. When the Roman Emperor Augustus, he referred to himself as the first citizen, neutered the republic, he was careful to maintain the form of the old republic. Lenin and the Bolsheviks did the same when they seized and crushed the autonomous Soviets. Even the Nazis and the Stalinists insisted they ruled democratic states. Despotic government, as Thomas Paine wrote, is a fungus that grows out of a corrupt civil society. This is what happened to these older democracies. It is what happened to us. Corporations are legally empowered to exploit and loot. It is impossible to vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs or ExxonMobil. The pharmaceutical and insurance industries are legally empowered to hold sick children hostage while their parents frantically bankrupt themselves trying to save their sons or daughters. Banks are legally empowered to burden people with student loans that cannot be forgiven by declaring bankruptcy. The animal agriculture industry is legally empowered in many states to charge those who attempt to publicize the conditions in the vast factory farms where diseased animals are warehoused for slaughter with a criminal offense. Corporations are legally empowered to carry out tax boycotts. Free trade deals legally empower global corporations to destroy small farmers and businesses and deindustrialize the country. Government agencies designed to protect the public from contaminated air, water, and food 
and from usurious creditors and lenders have been gutted. The Supreme Court, in an inversion of rights worthy of George Orwell, defines unlimited corporate contributions to electoral campaigns as the right to petition the government and a form of free speech. The press, owned by corporations, is an echo chamber for the elites. State and city enterprises and utilities are sold off to corporations that hike rates and deny services. The educational system is being privatized and turned into a species of rote vocational training. Wages are stagnant or have declined. Unemployment and underemployment, masked by falsified statistics, have thrust half the country into chronic poverty. Social services are abolished in the name of austerity. Culture and the arts have been replaced by sexual commodification, banal entertainment, and graphic depictions of violence. The infrastructure neglected and underfunded is collapsing. Bankruptcies, foreclosures, food shortages, and untreated illnesses that lead to early death plague a harried underclass. The desperate flee into an underground economy dominated by drugs, crime, and human trafficking. The state, rather than address the economic misery, militarizes police departments and empowers them to use lethal force against unarmed citizens. It fills the prisons with 2.3 million people, only a tiny percentage of whom ever got a trial. And one million prisoners now work for corporations inside prisons as modern-day slaves paid pennies on the dollar without any rights or protection. They are the corporate state's ideal worker. The amendments of the Constitution designed to protect the citizen from tyranny are meaningless. The Fourth Amendment, for example, reads, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. The reality is that our telephone calls, emails, texts, and financial judicial and medical records, along with every website we visit, and our physical travels are tracked, recorded, and stored in perpetuity in government computer banks. The state tortures not only in black sites, such as Bagram or Guantanamo Bay, but in supermax facilities, such as the one in Florence, Colorado, where inmates suffer psychological breakdowns from prolonged solitary confinement. Prisoners endure round-the-clock electronic monitoring and 23-hour-a-day lockdowns. They undergo extreme sensory deprivation. They are beaten. They must shower and go to the bathroom on camera. They can write only one letter a week to one relative and cannot use more than three pieces of paper. They often have no access to fresh air and take their one hour of daily recreation in a huge cage that resembles a treadmill for hamsters. 
The state uses special administration measures known as SAMs to strip citizens of their judicial rights. SAMs restrict a citizen's communication with the outside world. They end calls, letters, and visits with anyone except attorneys and sharply limit contact with family members. Citizens under SAMs are not permitted to see most of the evidence against them because of a legal provision called the Classified Information Procedures Act, or SEPA. SEPA, instituted under the Reagan administration, allows evidence in a trial to be classified. And those who are tried and convicted, like Joseph K., in Franz Kafka's The Trial, can be found guilty without ever seeing the evidence brought against them. And under SAMS, it is against the law for those who have contact with someone held under SAMS, including attorneys, to speak about the physical and psychological conditions being inflicted on the prisoner. When prisoners in our society are released, they have lost the right to vote, and receive public assistance, they are burdened with fines that, if unpaid, will put them back behind bars. They are subject to arbitrary searches and arrests. They spend the rest of their lives marginalized as members of a vast criminal caste system. And that is why 76% of those released from state penitentiaries return to prison within five years. Our system of mass incarceration, however, is not, as critics charge, broken. It works exactly the way it is designed to work. The bodies of poor people of color do not generate money for corporations on the streets of our deindustrialized cities, but they generate $40,000 or $50,000 a year if we lock them in cages, and that is why they are there. The executive branch of government is empowered to assassinate U.S. citizens. It can call the army into the streets to quell civil unrest under Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, overturning the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which prohibited the military from acting as a domestic police force. The executive branch can order the military to seize U.S. citizens deemed to be terrorists or associated with terrorists, and this is called extraordinary rendition. Those seized can be denied due process and habeas corpus and held indefinitely in military facilities. Constitutionally protected statements, beliefs, and associations are now criminalized. The state can detain and prosecute people not for what they have done or even for what they are planning to do, but for holding religious or political beliefs that the state deems seditious. The first of those targeted have been observant Muslims, but they will not be the last. The outward forms of democratic participation, voting, competing political parties, Judicial oversight and legislation are meaningless theater. No one who lives under constant surveillance, who is subject to detention anywhere at any time, who has lost their legal rights, 
who cannot protect themselves from corporate exploitation, whose conversations, messages, meetings, proclivities, and habits are recorded, stored, and analyzed, can be described as free. The relationship between the state and the citizen who is watched constantly is one of master and slave, and the shackles will not be removed if Trump disappears. The dismantling of democratic institutions, places where the citizen has agency and a voice, is far graver than the ascendancy to the White House of Trump. The coup destroyed the two-party system. It destroyed labor unions. It destroyed public education. It destroyed the judiciary. It destroyed the press. It destroyed academia. It destroyed consumer and environmental protection. It destroyed our industrial base. It destroyed communities and cities. And it destroyed the lives of tens of millions of Americans, no longer able to find work that provides a living wage, cursed to live in chronic poverty or locked in cages. Perhaps even more ominously, this coup destroyed the credibility of liberal democracy itself. Self-identified liberals such as the Clintons and Barack Obama mouthed the words of liberal democratic values while making war on these values in the service of corporate power. And this rendered these values meaningless. The revolt we see rippling across the country is a revolt not only against a corporate system that has betrayed workers, but also for many, the tenets that define a traditional democracy. And this is very dangerous. It will allow the radical right, with or without Trump, to cement into place an Americanized fascism. The acceleration of deindustrialization by the 1970s created a crisis that forced the ruling elites to adopt a new ideology, as Sturt Hall explains in his book, Policing the Crisis. This ideology, trumpeted by a compliant media, shifted its focus from the common good to race, crime, and law and order. It told those undergoing profound economic and political change that their suffering stemmed not from corporate greed, but from a threat to national integrity. The old consensus that buttressed the programs of the New Deal and the welfare state was discredited as enabling criminal black youth, welfare queens, and social parasites. These parasites were to blame. And this opened the door to an authoritarian populism begun by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, which supposedly championed family values, traditional morality, individual autonomy, law and order, the Christian faith, and the return of a mythical past. 